when we walk into a room, uh, the first thing our brain, the first question our brain tries to answer is, am I safe? Am I safe here? Um, is this a safe room to be in? Are these safe people to, to be with? Um, are they uh, welcoming me? Are they accepting me? Um, or is this a place that I'm not welcome, a place that I'm not safe? Uh, and so our brain is asking, am I safe? And that part of our brain is concerned with uh, safety and survival. Um, it's kind of like you know the most basic part of our brain is like, how do I survive? I have to stay safe. Is there a threat uh, on the horizon? Is there a threat in this room? And when we sense a threat, a danger or an enemy, we have this fight or flight response. Sometimes people add other things like freeze and what else, what, what, what not. But fight or flight is like when we answer the question, am I safe? And we say no, we have this fight or flight response. And I just wanted us as a group um, to share as a whole, like what, what are some ways that we might see uh, a fight or flight response in, in ourselves? Um, like, so you, you could also ask, what do we do when we're afraid? And you might think like, well, I'm not usually afraid, usually I'm kind of angry, which is the fight response to fear. I'm afraid, and so I'm going to fight. Anger to me the way I'm going to fight. Or flight is like, I just want to get out of here. I'm scared. I, wanna, uh, I want to run. Or we kind of just maybe shut down, wait till it's over. Um, but what are some other ways we respond when we're afraid? What do those fight and flight responses look like? And you don't have to share for yourself, but just in general. I'm maybe flight. Uh, uh, I'm afraid of driving at night or in the rain. Uh, my flight would be to stay home and, yeah. and not not take the risk. So avoid the thing that's scary. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. Uh, well, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He has given us to us a spirit of love, kindness, and might. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's where we want to get to. Is God gives us that but also recognizing, well, what, when we're afraid, we need to turn to God for those things. So, yeah, that's a good, that's a good verse. Any other things we do when we're afraid? Get defensive. Get defensive, yeah. Might, yeah, try to explain or justify or defend ourselves, yeah. Yell. Yeah, we might yell. Yeah, you know, animals, when they're afraid... They'll make themselves bigger, even if they're smaller. So, like, yelling can make us be bigger to scare something away. Yeah. Call for help. Call for help, yeah. Yeah, it's like you need someone to come in this situation. Yeah. One thing, somebody have one on the tip of their tongue? We'll do one more. Laughter. We might laugh. Yeah, sometimes that can be a good, healthy kind of laughter. Sometimes we might also be a nervous, you know, scared response. Or um, even if maybe if we hear something, somebody say something, and we're not sure we like it, we might laugh anyway to kind of cover up whether we like it or not. But yeah, we all experience times during our day, during our week, where um, we feel afraid. I was thinking, you know, as I was getting ready this morning, the various times I was afraid this week, and it maybe wasn't a dwelling fear that just lasted, you know, for hours, but in a moment, being afraid. Um, and we have either go in fight or flight with that. And this, we've been going through Psalm 23 because there's a couple ways we can go through the Bible. And one of those, one of the most powerful ways, I think, is by taking a theme or a thread and tracing it from the beginning all the way to the end. And one of those threads that goes from the beginning to the end is God being our shepherd, someone who is with us and who's for us and who guides us and protects us and, and feeds us and takes us where we need to be. And uh, we see that we're doing this in the Christmas season because one of the 
famous passages we read at Christmas time is Micah 5.4, which talks about uh, God raising up a shepherd for his people from the town of Bethlehem. In Psalm 23, God uses this sheep-shepherd relationship as a way to describe our dynamic, our relational dynamic with God, is that we are like sheep and he is like a shepherd. And it's a way God's revealed himself of this is what my relationship with you is like. And the person writing it is, is David. Um, he was the, you know, known as the greatest king of Israel. Every king after him, people wanted to be. With, how, much, how do they measure up to David? And he was in about 1000 BC is when he, he lived. And David wrote this psalm, but before he was a, a king, he was a shepherd. And so he knows what are sheep like, what do they need. He knows what a good shepherd is like. And so he writes this psalm from the perspective of a sheep. And we have our, our cool little setup here. And so David is not writing as the shepherd. Uh, he's writing as one of the sheep. It's like if we could fig- think of what is that sheep thinking. It's like David like went in the mind of a sheep and is talking about his shepherd um, in this psalm uh, as he's writing uh, about it and praising God and being in a situation. And sheep, that David knows that sheep are very needy. They have a lot of needs. They really can't take care of themselves on their own, whether it's food or whether it's protection. They are very needy. And so a good shepherd must be attentive. And the health and happiness of the sheep depends on the shepherd, whether it's a good shepherd or a bad shepherd. We saw in verses 1 through 3, really, David has a sheep saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Basically, because the Lord is my shepherd, I'm not going to be in need of the things that I, that I need, that the shepherd is going to provide me for those things. And so he went through these verbs of what, what does a good shepherd do, talking about the shepherd. And in verse 4, he made this switch. Instead of talking about the shepherd, he started talking to the shepherd, um, saying, my shepherd, you're with me in this valley. You comfort me in the valley. And then this week, the metaphor switches from shepherd to host, of God being David's host in his home for a meal. And he continues talking to God, not talking about him, but talking to God. And I want, just to make this message personal, um, he's going to mention the presence of his enemies. So I want you to think, don't say it out loud, who feels like an enemy to you right now? And I said feels because a lot of times someone feels like an enemy most of the time when we, when we are treating someone as an enemy, they actually aren't. They feel like an enemy for some reason. It could be our perception, just things we're believing about them or about ourselves. And so, to make this message personal, who feels like an enemy to you right now? Someone that you have a fight or flight response to, that I'm afraid of them, I don't want to talk to them, I just want them to go away, I just want them to stop this, I just wish they could do this thing. Or you walk, if you walked in a room, you would avoid them or you know you'd maybe be like everything inside me is saying run i hate this uh, but you put on a, a face that says you know I'm, I'm okay with this who's someone who feels like an enemy to you right now and i want you to consider them uh, that person throughout this message um, because david's talking about being in the presence of his enemies and what changes that situation for him is god's presence and so the first line in uh, psalm 23 verse 5 he says this to his host, to God. You prepare a table before me. And then he goes on and says, in the presence of my enemies, but then he says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And there was hospitality, um, hosting someone in your home, was, is very important in the Middle East and was very important in the ancient world. And it's different from us. We, we tend to be uh, people who... Um, one interesting way that they showed off their wealth was by having a really awesome dinner party. And the way we kind of show off our wealth is typically 
I'm going to buy a better house, I'm going to buy a better car, I'm going to have better clothes, you know, whatever it might be. But the way someone in the Middle East shows off their wealth is by, I'm going to host people, I'm going to throw a party they're all going to be talking about, uh, and I'm going to provide three times more food than is actually needed. That's how I show you how rich and wealthy I am. And hospitality was almost like a civic duty. Um, If somebody needed a place to stay, uh, it was like an honor thing that you would provide them with that place. And that would be for the honor of you and your family, but also the honor of the town. If you had a guest come into a town and visitor and nobody welcomed them to stay, it's like that's kind of, you know, very bad reputation for your town. So hospitality was like a civic duty and it was a way to show off uh, how much money you had. You'd host a meal um, and it's like you throw a party people will talk about. And it's like we might leave someone's house, um, you know, thinking about different things that stood out to us. But what they would talk about, you know, at the you know, water cooler the next day is like, man, I was at so-and-so's house and like their hospitality was you know, so awesome. The food, the drink, you know, whatever it was, that's what they were talked about. And so some elements of good hospitality, they're named here. Um, basically, David is saying, you, God, you did this for me. He's talking to God as his host. You did this for me. He says, uh, you prepare a table before me. And this is uh, him setting out the food in, in Genesis 18, verses uh, 1 through 15, we see Abraham has these three visitors that come walking by uh, his house or his tent, and they turn up to be um, angels, he, which he doesn't know. But he sees them, and he offers them hospitality, and he offers them water to drink, water to uh, wash their feet, rest, bread, refresh yourselves. He says to Sarah, his wife, his wife, quick, make some food. Um, he goes and picks a calf for the, his servant to prepare. Quick, you know, slaughter this calf and we're going to make this for you. And he says, please stay, refresh yourselves, let me provide for you. And then it says in uh, verse 8, Genesis after, chapter 18, it said, then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And so we see in this verse, you prepare a table before me. That's a um, Abraham did this, and that's the image we're supposed to see is that uh, we're sitting there at this table and God's saying, please, please, uh, come in and sit down. I'm going to prepare this food for you. I'm going to prepare this drink for you. I want to set this table for you. I'm gonna, I want you to sit here, and I'm setting a table and preparing this for you. And David, this is this picture of God he has, that he's you know, sitting at a table, and it's like God wants to provide this awesome banquet and feast for me which is maybe a little different than we would think of it. We would maybe think God would be the guest of honor, but in this case, he makes David the guest of honor. Like, sit down, I want to do this for you. And then he says uh, at the end of verse 5, you anoint my head with oil. And there's different reasons that you would anoint someone's head. One is for consecration or inauguration. Like, okay, the priests of Israel, they're anointed with oil. You're being set apart for this task. It's like a, a symbol of God's presence, God is with you, you're being set apart for this. The uh, kings, David himself was anointed with oil um, by the prophet Samuel to be king. Um, But it also could be for wounds or sores or for just sickness in general. Thirdly, it could be an act of hospitality to honor guests. And it would often be um, an oil mixed with some sort of fragrance that would kind of be like, uh, it would give um, almost like lotion for the the complexion in the dark uh, desert, you know, arid atmosphere. Uh, but also, like, there'd be some uh, fragrance with it, so it's like, oh, they have this, um, this good scent to it. And you might be like, well, what is the point of that? Well, I was like, well, my deodorant has scent to it. I'm sure uh, if you use it, yours does too. And maybe if we're getting ready for something very special, we would put cologne or perfume on. Um, and it's like, this is like, I'm going to honor you by giving you this thing that's going to you know, p- 
put be basically be lotion to your face, and you're going to smell really good. Um, and uh, this Jesus has this done to him um, in Luke chapter seven, uh, which we covered you know, a couple months ago in the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter seven. There's a woman who does this to Jesus. Let me just read how it describes it. Um, it says, a woman comes in and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So there's this woman, she provides water through her tears to wash his feet um, and then she uh, give, anoints his feet. But then the person who's actually hosting, the person who was the host of this party, is kind of like, if Jesus knew what this woman was like, he wouldn't be letting her wash his feet and anoint him. And then, but Jesus says to him, listen, listen, Simon, who's hosting this thing. He says, uh, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And so Jesus says, uh, listen, Simon, like you're the host of this thing, but she's acting as a better host than you are. She anointed my head with oil. She washed my feet. Um, she's honoring me. She's a better host than you. And then he also says, so he's a good host. You prepare a table before me. Uh, you anoint my head with oil. And then he says, my cup overflows. Um, it's like he has really good waiters. You know, if you're at uh, Double Yoke on the Square for breakfast, it's like a good waitress or waiter your coffee's, you're not ever going to see the bottom of your cup, right? The coffee, she, they're always there putting more coffee. And it's like, um, you know, and we might ask, like, is this unlimited free refills? You know, we want the, you know, like bottomless fries. Like, you never see the bottom. He's like, my cup's overflowing. Like, it just never gets drained. Like, you're always supplying me um, with more. I'm not cutting them off. Um, you can just have however much you want. It's a, a generous host. And he's basically saying, like, you know, God's pulling out all the stops. This is generous hospitality, over-the-top generous and what we need to remember is he's talking about God. This is God is his host doing these things, showing this over-the-top generosity, hospitality. Welcome, welcome. I want you to sit down. I want you to be filled. I want you to drink. I want you to have a good time. I want you to, to see. Uh, I'm going to use my riches. You know, God is super rich. He's like, how am I going to show off my richness? I'm going to provide for you uh, the most generous, radical, over-the-top hospitality uh, that I can. Throws this amazing party with us as the guests of honor. But what's interesting is he says, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And at that point, it's kind of like, huh? Who invited them? <laughs> right? This, this is a you know, party that I'm supposed to enjoy. Like, what are my enemies doing at this party? Um, and it's uh, maybe not necessarily like they, they're at, invited to the party, but at least they know about the party. They're watching it from the outside in. Maybe they, uh, they can see what's going on. And we would think, shouldn't this party be in the presence of my friends, people who like me, people who enjoy me, um, people who are for me, not against me? Um, but this has, he says, this is in the presence of people who don't like me, that are against us, maybe muttering under their breath about him, plotting against him. And in that situation, our brain says, not safe. Enemies, enemies, not safe. And we go into this fight or flight response. Protect, don't let your guard down, don't relax, be stressed, watchful, be ready. Uh, you might need to attack because you're going to be attacked. And this whole thing brings together two big themes in Jesus' ministry and what he was doing. And basically Jesus went around talking about the kingdom of God, like, hey, you want to get in on this. The kingdom is coming. You, this is where, uh, this is salvation. This is you being forgiven. This is you being redeemed and rescued from your situation. And he described it as a party. So one thing Jesus often said was, 
Come to the party. Come to the party. The kingdom of God is a party and God's inviting you. You're the guest of honor. He's the host. He wants you to come uh, to this party. And uh, it's like the kingdom of God is a banquet with God as the host. In Revelation 19, verses 1, 6 through 10, what all believers have to look forward to, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, is that Jesus, we, the Bible talks about uh, his relationship with the church, is he's the husband and he's uh, married us. But it's like we're betrothed. Uh, awaiting the final day of the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's like when Jesus comes back, it's like we're engaged. When he comes back as the wedding ceremony, it's going to be this huge party. So one of the themes in Jesus' ministry is come to the party. Come to the party that the kingdom of God is. But one of the other themes is get ready to be hated. Wait, wait a second. Come to the party and get ready to be hated? Like, what? what is that? What is, how do these even fit together? Uh, if it's a party, I don't want to be hated. Um, but he said, like, if you are at this party, there's going to be people on the outside that hate you for it. They hated me, they're going to hate you. There's going to be people who don't like me, and so they're not going to like you. And he talked about, blessed are you when people persecute you. Let me just flip to, to Luke again, where Jesus has all these, um, the Beatitudes. He says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you, here comes the hate, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. We would think, hey, poor people aren't blessed. Hungry people aren't blessed. Weeping people aren't blessed. Hated people aren't blessed. But Jesus says, come to the party. And it's because you've come to the party that is the kingdom of God that people are looking in and they are hating you. He says, that party, you're looking forward to the final party at the end of time. When he comes back, it's like, I'm going to reverse all those things. There's going to be this reversal. It's turned upside down when he comes back. And even at the Last Supper, uh, Jesus, John 13 through 17, his last supper with his disciples. They're having this meal, they're having the Passover. He looks around, nobody's there to wash feet. So Jesus himself gets down, washes his disciples' feet as the good host. And then he talks to them in John 15. Uh, people are going to, people hated me, they're going to hate you. And so he's hosting this meal, ser- you know, serving as the good host, but also saying, and because you love me and because I love you, people are going to hate you for that. And Luke 15 um, this, uh, there's this, uh, Jesus tells this story after some people. He's hanging out with these tax collectors, with these sinners, basically people that everyone would consider lowlifes and good-for-nothings, people who've made a mess of their lives. It's like, those people aren't even good citizens. They're not loyal Israelites. Um, these are people who've wasted their lives. They're uh, just ruining everything. Like, they shouldn't be getting anything from you, Jesus. And so there's the religious, religious leaders say, Jesus, why are you eating with them? Why are you eating with those people? Why do you hang around them? Why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, these lowlifes? And then Jesus says, well, let me tell you why. And then he tells three stories all about something that's lost and then gets found. And the one story he tells is about a father who has two sons, an older and a younger. I guess that's always the case, unless they're twins. So you didn't really need that. It's two sons. And the younger son says, Dad, I want you to give me my inheritance early. Basically kind of like, I know you're still living, but I kind of want to live like you're dead by getting the money now so I can use it. And then he goes off and he wastes it all. And then eventually he, has, he wakes up and is like, what am I doing with my life? Like, surely 
where I'm at, he wait, you know, he's laying with the pigs, wanting what they have to eat. And he says, surely being a servant to my dad's house is way better than this. So I'll go back, I'll apologize, and I'll tell my dad, like, I'm sorry, please let me just be a servant in your house. And he goes back, and before the he can get his rehearsed apology out, he's like, Dad, you know, I'm sorry. His dad says, oh, call, tell the servants, go get the fatted calf, go send the, you know, send the invites to the party. Let's, let's celebrate my son who was lost has now been found. I thought he was dead, but now he's alive. And he doesn't care who's watching. He doesn't care who's offended. And a book that I was reading on Psalm 23 talked about this passage in Luke 15 saying all the whole town would have been like, why are you throwing a party for this son who disgraced you, who dishonored you, who wasted all your money? I mean, what about the good son, the, the older son? He's been here the whole time. You should uh, throw a party for him because he's the one that's been obedient. You're throwing a party for the disobedient son, the one who took your money and wasted it and came back with nothing and rags? Why do you throw a party for him? Um, but Jesus says that's what it's like in God's kingdom. He said, we're in this party with people who were lost and have been found and God throws this party, but just as in Jesus' day, he's hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners and there's people on the outside who are their enemies saying, why in the world is he blessing them? Why in the world is he welcoming them? Why in the world is he loving them? Why is he doing this? Why is he partying with all these sinners? There's enemies on the outside saying, these people are, just get rid of them. They're not, they're not worth your time. And so the question for us is, do you believe that God loves you so ridiculously much that it's offensive to people who don't understand that love, that God loves you beyond your wildest dreams, that you're more sinful than you know, and God loves you more than you currently believe. We'll never hit the end of how of understanding how much God loves us. That he loves you so ridiculously much that it's offensive to anybody who looks and says, why would he bless someone like you? Right? It's like, we deserve the opposite of what God gives us, but he loves us and he doesn't care who's offended by it. And one takeaway we can have is that Jesus is not ashamed to be our shepherd. Jesus is not ashamed to be our king. He's not ashamed to be our friend. Jesus is proud to be our shepherd. These people are like, why are you hanging around with those sinners and tax collectors? People have ruined their lives. And he's like, because this is where, these are the people God loves. He loves them. He loves you too. You can be part of the party as well. And he's just saying, I'm not ashamed to be with these people. I'm proud to be them, with them. And he says in the next verse, verse 6, the last one, he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me always. So goodness is God, you can think of it as God is good. He always does good. He never does bad. That anything God does is always good. It's never bad. And so he's like, God, your goodness, that's going to follow me all the days of my life. And goodness is like a... We describe something as good when we're satisfied by it. How's the movie? We'll say bad or good. How's you know how's the restaurant? Bad or good? And basically rating like was I satisfied by it? Did it like um, make me feel like oh that was that was good? I like well, that was good to see. That was good to eat. How's the party? Good or bad? Awkward? Whatever it is. And we use good. It's like God's satisfying goodness is going to be with me all the days of my life. But then he also says uh, mercy, and this is a powerful word in the Old Testament. Um, it's the Hebrew word. You have to kind of clear your throat when you say it. It's hesed. Uh, H-E, I mean, H-E-S-E-D is an easy way to pronounce it, but it's really a K-H, like a 
That's it. <laughs> Sorry. I'll wipe, I'll, I'll wipe your faces off later from the spit that flew off. But another way to translate it is, you know, is mercy. But uh, love often is translated as steadfast love in the Old Testament. God's goodness and steadfast love. His covenantal commitment that I am committed to these people no matter what. I'm going to be for them. I'm going to be with them. I have steadfast love for them. And that means that he responds, because he has that steadfast love for us, he responds to our neediness with his goodness to do good to us, to give us good. And he says these are going to follow him. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And about, you know, this is, I just kind of made, I didn't fully make this up. I did a search in my Bible software of this word, follow, and how, how it often is translated. My, so my rough guesstimate is that 90% of the time, this word is about pursuing someone to attack them, that you to chase them, to hunt them, to persecute them. For Samuel 23:25, uh, we're told that Saul pursued David. Uh, Psalm 7:2, David prays, "Save me from my pursuers." Same word. And so he's using this word that's often used for enemies, but he's using it to talk about what God's going to do. Maybe there's going to be people hunting me down, pursuing me, uh, chasing after me, trying to to get me. But God's goodness and mercy, that's going to also follow me and pursue me and chase me all the days of my life. No matter who else pursues me, goodness and his love are not going to take a break. They're going to be with me. They're going to be constant. He says, it'll be all the days of my life. Maybe for this year I had an enemy that was pursuing me, but all the days of my life, um, are going to have God's goodness and love with me. It's always, never stops, doesn't take breaks, no expiration date, no matter what. That God, no matter what's happening to me, God's goodness and love, His mercy are with me. And then he says, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And house of the Lord could be a way to talk about uh, the temple that was in Jerusalem, um, where uh, that God told them to build the physical temple, but more broadly, it can be talked about a relationship with God. That uh, like I'm finding my home in Him. Like uh, we're going to always be together, be living together, having a relationship to uh, to one another. And it's important. It's the house of the Lord, which is why He's the host. In His house, He's hosting. And David says, "I shall dwell in it." And He's like, "God's hosting me, and I'm not leaving." He'll never boot us out. We'll never overstay our welcome. Um, there's not going to be an eviction notice at some point, but it's a party that never ends. And Jesus uses a word very similar to this in John 15. He says, abide. Abide in me, or remain in me, or dwell in me. Make your home me, that you're never leaving it, that all, wherever you go, like you are at home with me. And in a way, in a way this final verse is a summary testimony of David's life. He's like, let me just tell you what my life has been like. Surely goodness and mercy and shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's like his testimony for his life. And one way to talk about God and our attachment to him is that he's a, our secure base and our safe haven. That he, he, that's, you know, he's our home. It's like that's where I'm secure, that's where I'm safe, and it's with God and from God that we go into the world and we return to our secure base and our safe haven. And so Jesus... And John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. He's the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 23, that God himself would come in the flesh to be with his people as their shepherd. And so his invitation to us is, make me your shepherd. Like, follow me, sheep follow their shepherd. Um, but also, it's, he's the good shepherd, but he's, like, he's also uh, the good host. I am the good host. 
Come to the party. Make me your shepherd. Come to the party. And here's a big idea for today of what you can use to summarize some of these two verses. Is that Jesus calms you with safety even though there's danger. Jesus calms you with safety even though there's danger. You're in the presence of enemies. But Jesus can calm you with his safety even though there's danger. And if we're getting real practical, thinking about and making this personal, the person in your life or people that you feel like, I feel like they're my enemy, like they're against me, I need to avoid them or I need to stop them or I need to confront them. The person in your life that you're afraid of or who makes you really angry, um, that you know, maybe you're like, I wouldn't call them an enemy, but just pick a hard relationship in your life and apply this to it. Um, there's a thing some authors refer to as enemy mode. And enemy mode is when we're focused on the pain or problem this person causes, and we're unable to have positive feelings toward them. Like you know when you're going all bad on somebody that you're in enemy mode. Like, I just can't think of anything to appreciate about them, that I can't think of anything good about them. You know you're in enemy mode. You're just focused on the pain or the problem they've caused you, and you're unable to have positive feelings toward them. That's when we're in fight or flight. Is like, this person is a threat in some way. Maybe you wouldn't put it that you know, kind of extreme, but it's like in some way we feel threatened by them. And just to get into like maybe what is threatening you, um, we tend to build our identity on three things, you know, wrong, three wrong things. Um, so we say who I am equals uh, what I do plus what I have plus what others think. So we often build our identity on those three things. Who I am equals what I do plus what I have plus what others think. And so this person in your life that you're having a hard time with, perhaps they're a threat to you getting things done. You build your identity on what I do. Part of who I am is what I do. And so they're a threat to getting things done. Who am I if I don't get this done? You know, who, who, What's my identity? Or perhaps they're a threat to what you have. Who, I, who am I if I don't have this thing? Or perhaps they're a threat to what others think of you. Who am I if people don't think well of me? Who, what I do plus what I have plus what others think. And if you're seeing somebody as like, I see the pain or the problem, you're feeling threatened, it's likely that it's a threat to yourself, but not physically, but like who I am, what I base my identity on, my value, my worth, my, my sense of self. And those three things, who I am, what I do, what I have, what others think. And you might think, well, it doesn't go that deep for me with this person. They're just kind of annoying. Uh, and maybe, maybe that's the case. I, I, I can't tell you for sure. But pay attention in your life to the times when you act, react really strongly to someone. And then if you step back and be like, oh, they just, they just like s- said one thing, and I reacted super strongly to it. Either I felt scared or I felt angry. I just wanted to run away. Um, I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to... Uh, it's like when we're reacting really strongly, it's probably because we're in a fight-or-flight response and we have sensed a threat um, to us, maybe not physically, but emotionally, or our worth, or value, or identity, is that, and just take a step back and say, well, why, where did that come from? Why did I react so strongly? Why can I only see the pain or problem this person is, and I can't have any positive feelings uh, toward them? And we, they probably threaten what's important to you. And I wanted to hand out um, some, how many of you have heard about something called the Enneagram? Enneagram. Maybe about a third or so. This is, uh, I mean, I guess you could maybe, could you just hand that around? Uh, um, does it even call itself a personality test? 
I wouldn't call it a personality test, but I know as soon as I say the word personality test, some of you are probably maybe feeling uh, that I'm creating a problem because you're like, personality tests are so dumb. They box me in. They can't get it right. They're too like sim- simple, and they can't surely cover everything that I am as a person. But, And I agree with you. That is most likely the case. I found the Enneagram extremely helpful for helping me see um, why am I reacting so strongly in this situation. So um, what this has on, I'm not going to go through these. They see the Enneagram has nine types. And what it says is it's basically nine different ways of looking at the world, uh, nine different perspectives. And really what it, what it tries to get down to is like, why do you do the things you do? What's driving you? What's motivating you? Um, for instance, I could be up here wanting to give a good sermon. And my reason for wanting to give a good sermon could be completely different than your reason for wanting to give a good sermon. And what the nine types do is they try to get down below the surface, not like describing your behaviors, but why do you do what you do? And I wanted to hand this out because um, it has two things that are useful. There's core fears, and then there's core longings or, and core desires. And many times when we're having a very big reaction to something, we feel threatened. It's because of that core fear. When we're afraid, right? Fight or flight. It's when that core fear has come into place. And I'm, you know, you, this, this gal has a, t- a free assessment. She's a Christian. And she writes, you know, she has these little journals actually you can get. If you took her assessment and you could get a journal of your type, and she would take you through several chapters with questions for you to reflect on. I'm like, why, is, why am I that way? But the only reason I wanted to bring this out is before that fears part. So let me give you an example. I'm a type 1, and I would just encourage you maybe read through all these and ask which one resonates with me. Because um, it's like, yeah, that's what I'm always afraid of. Or, yeah, that's what I'm always longing to hear. So type 1, a moral perfectionist. Uh, the core fear is being wrong, bad, evil, inappropriate, unredeemable, or corruptible. And if I could tell you, I, I guess... If I had kept count of all the times after a group time together, Thursday night we had a group time, right, um, and hung out, uh, and sometimes we're teaching, sometimes we're just hanging out, and if you would be maybe be surprised at all the times that I leave one of those things, and I'm going back through all the things I said. Did I say anything bad? Did I say anything inappropriate? Did I say anything that could be taken as wrong? Because that's a huge fear of mine, is that people would not see me as good, that I um, am inappropriate, that I'm bad, that I'm, you know, I've been wrong. And this, throughout this whole, uh, I'm just not you know, trying to spill my guts here, but just to give you examples of how this uh, works out, this whole thing where we've been working on moving, uh, it's a huge decision that has huge impacts on us as a congregation in different ways. And through the whole thing, one of my fears is, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the good thing? All right. That's what I, my fear is that I've I'm wrong that I've been uh, that I've done the bad the wrong thing and the uh, the little fire flame thing. What I desire to hear is you are good. I want people to see I've done good. I've made good decisions. I haven't made bad decisions. I and it's very easy to be seen. You even make good decisions to be seen as bad. Jesus, right? People thought he was bad even though he was very good. And so that's just how that works out for me. And so I can note I've noticed lately that when I'm feeling like really mad or really scared or really like, I want to run in and fix this person's perception of me, it's usually, oh, I'm afraid that I'm not going to be seen as good, that I'm going to be seen as bad. And so for you, just as you go through life, you know, read some of these and think, 
you know, which one describes me or take her test? I think maybe it's, I don't know how long it takes, 15 to 30 minutes. And then get the type out of that and just think, is this why I'm reacting like that? It's when we feel that threat to ourselves. What Jesus calls us to is a response of love, not fear. He says, love your enemies. He doesn't say, be afraid of them. He also doesn't say, trust your enemies. He says, love them. Do for them what you are wishing they would do for you. And the only way we can get out of a fight or flight response to the people we feel are our enemies is if we can get secure uh, in something else other than them, is that we can feel safety. And so, you know, we need to change our source of who I am. Like, what, I don't need to do this. I don't need to have that. I don't need their approval. But instead, uh, you know, it's kind of like this image that we have here is the Lord setting this table of all this stuff. And it's like, we don't need to fight over the scraps you know, out there, uh, of like, you know, I need to, you know, what I do, what I have, what others think. Like, we don't need to fight about that. It's like God has set out this table, uh, representing His goodness and love, and so we can feast on that. It's like uh, we need to care about what God does, what God gives, what God thinks, not what I do, what I have, uh, what others think. It's like, what does God do? He's my shepherd. He set up this uh, this lavish feast of his love and goodness. What does God give? He, he gives us everything we need. He gives us our sense of self, who we are. Uh, it's not based on what we do and what we have, what others think. I mean, it can't be taken away from us that he's going to keep it secure, that he, him being the source of our sense of self, of being secure uh, and satisfied and significant, it's like he gives us that and it can't be taken away by another enemy. And so loving enemies is not something that can come from us. Like, I have this enemy... Like, okay, I identified a Mitch, pain or problem, I, that's what I'm seeing, how do I love them? It's not just to grit your teeth and try hard. It's like that love for enemies can only be drawn from the well of God's love for us when we were his enemies. It's that we draw out of that well, and now we can give it to them as well. So just one final phrase that comes from Romans 8. The Apostle Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And the point isn't that it's not possible for someone to be against us, but the point is that if God is for us, it doesn't really matter who's against us. In comparison to God being for us, when he has every reason to be against us, is incomparable uh, to somebody else being against us. It's like, God, I was your enemy, and now you're for me, and it doesn't really matter to me who is against me. And in some ways, that's what Jesus is saying. Make me your shepherd. Uh, come to the party. He's having these parties with people who really need grace and mercy and love. And they're at this party, and it's like, we don't care who's outside hating us for being at this party. We're, we're, at, we're at the party. It's not like, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. Like, what if there's another party down the road that's better? No, this party is so good, and we're just resting in it. And so it's like, nothing, he says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from his love. And his love makes us feel safe when it's not. We can, even when there's enemies, even when there's danger, even when we sense a threat, it's like, I can sit back and relax because... The Lord prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. We can feast on his goodness and love. And the more we are loved by God, the less we'll feel threatened by others' lack of love toward us as our enemies.